Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Wade Matthew continues our series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. Today, looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. And now, here's Wade. Good morning, everyone. I'm here to tell you that Jesus is who he claims to be. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way to God. He is Son of God and Son of Man, our Savior, the Word made flesh, the firstborn from the dead. He is our Maker, our Defender, our Redeemer, and our Friend. He is Christ the Lord, the Rock of Ages, sure foundation, the cornerstone. When he is your unforgettable savior, you will have life and have it more abundantly. And this is by an unknown author. Today's message is based on people, responsibilities, and relationships. Today's message is also based on the assumption that this excerpt by one who is unknown to us, but not to God, is representative of the truth and purpose in your life today. It's also representative of the beliefs of those who call the church at Corinth their own. Whether a believer at Corinth or in the year 2021, it is foundational and should affect every thought and action taken as you continually attempt to glorify God. And so as we go to slide two, I say to you, good morning. Uh, I hope you'll note that I put on the proper attire for this, uh, this week, uh, t-shirt and tie. It's, uh, summer attire. I realize it's not quite up to snuff, but, uh, it's Father's Day and I thought I would dress up a little bit like uh, Dave J did at the front. Uh, happy Father's Day to all who are out there. And, uh, if you fall into that category, enjoy your day, please. I want to thank the opening team who always set our minds on the topic That is ahead of us. And as you have guessed, the topic today is based on a passage regarding the Lord's Supper. Now, my Bible consists of 1,763 pages, and as such is an infinite wealth of knowledge and purpose for our lives. But I wonder if we don't make it too complicated sometimes, if we shouldn't just simplify it a little bit. After much stumbling and bumbling, something which man has never stopped to do, by the way, mankind has arrived at a point where the following should be evident. There is a greater power. The power is a triune God comprising of God the Father, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit. We are all sinners born into separation from God and in need of redemption, pardon me, in need of redemption if we ever want to have a personal relationship with him again. This redemption, our ability to return to that personal relationship, has been provided for each one through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but only if we choose it. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been cleansed of our sins. We have become new creations who have been redeemed through his grace Encouraged not to receive this grace in vain, but rather to live for the Lord's pleasure and his alone. To be obedient and faithful to his ordinances and his purpose. 
Now, when Jesus was asked about our purpose, in other words, what guidelines would he give us to live by? He gave us two commandments. He said, love the Lord with all your heart and your mind and your soul. And secondly, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we are directed to do this by bringing the gospel of Christ, the good news, to those who have not yet been redeemed. And you'll find this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Above and beyond these uh, concepts, we are given just two ordinances or directives to follow as displays of our redemption through Christ Jesus. The first is individually to be baptized as a public display of our redemption through Christ Jesus. The second is collectively as individual members of God's body to partake of the Lord's Supper in a display of unity, remembrance, and reverence in Christ Jesus until he returns in glory. That's Colossians 1, verse 24, where you can find that. Now, doesn't this seem simple? Isn't it doable? Isn't it concise? Now, I know that there are many nuances and other issues that I've omitted. But if we followed these few items that I've listed here, most assuredly, we would be received by God as his good and faithful servants. So let's just begin by reflecting on the passage that's at hand first. As we go about reading the passage uh, to come up from New King James Version, consider the times in which it was spoken, the location in which it was delivered, and the people to whom it was directed. Please try and make it relevant. Put yourself in their place. In a limited summary, it takes place in a time where there are still eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ in his many works, and indeed to his crucifixion. So these things can be validated. The place is the diverse and open city of Corinth, where most anything is occurring and tolerating as normal. The people, however, are professed followers of Christ and members of a newly created church in Corinth, and thus should be adhering to the simple list of do's and don'ts that we had listed previously. I want you to note that the writer of this letter, Paul, is a founding member of this church at Corinth and the one who has set the ordinances and the precepts through the authority given to him by the Lord. And so his comments and concerns should be considered valid. And you'll find that also in Colossians chapter 1, verse 25. And so as we go to slide 3 and onwards to 6, we're going to read uh, these verses, it starts at verse 17 and goes to 34 of chapter 11. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, and we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. Wonderful words from Paul. So as we go to slide seven and we look at the first five verses, verses 17 to 22, there are three points that come to mind. The first point is, who is Paul that he should be displeased? We find that Paul is many things, and like his fellow man, he has differing levels of authority, responsibility, and knowledge. First of all, he is an apostle of Jesus Christ under the authority of God. He is a servant of God and a steward of God's mysteries. He is a teacher, a mentor, and a fellow member of the body of Christ, which is the church, under authority of God. Now, we've spoken about this before, and you can find that in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6 as well. These titles and associated duties result from Paul's belief in the condensed list previously discussed. Because he is now a new creation, redeemed from a sin, he strives with joy to be used for the Lord's purposes. His responsibilities have been altered, and his focus is now totally on glorifying Jesus Christ and spreading the gospel. It is for this reason that he established the church. And so based on these qualifications, Paul sees things concerning the church of Corinth that are upsetting to him. This brings us to slide eight, which brings up the second question. Why should those of the church at Corinth know better? They have been given grace by God, by Christ Jesus, that they might be enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge. They are different from the world. The cross and its message are foolishness to those perishing, but to those being saved, it is the power of God. These are the people of the church of Corinth. They have been given the mind of Christ as well as having the Holy Spirit dwell within them. And there are a number of verses there that outline that. As stewards of God's mysteries, just like Paul is, they are to be faithful. Faithful means obedient. And last but certainly not least, each has been exposed to the same opportunities as Paul but they have not taken the next step in being faithful and obedient to Christ Jesus as Paul has. They have allowed outside interests 
to dictate changes in how they observe their responsibilities and it shows. So as we return to Paul in the next slide, we have heard the responses to the first two questions. Ask yourself the last question, a rhetorical question, as the answer has already been provided. What is the cause of Paul's displeasure? Paul is not pleased with the people who represent the church at Corinth. When they gather, they do so to the detriment of the church, not for the betterment of the church or the body of Christ, but for the betterment of themselves. They have created divisions amongst themselves. They've created factions and a hierarchy within their church body. They no longer look out for one another, but they look out for self. They have allowed some to go hungry and some to even get drunk within the church. They display disdain for God's dwelling place by not observing the Lord's Supper in a proper manner. So let's move on to slide 10 and look at the next three verses where Paul, through the authority given to him, through Christ Jesus, outlines the purpose of the Lord's Supper. Quite simply, the Lord, knowing what lay ahead of him, the betrayal, the sacrifice of his body and the shedding of his blood, instructed that whenever partaking of the bread, which was represented by his body and broken for him, that it was to be done in remembrance of he and he alone. And that's in verse 24. Furthermore, in verse 25, it says, when partaking of the cup, they were to remember Jesus Christ again for the new covenant that would always be found in his blood. In verse 26, quite simply, whenever the Lord's Supper was performed, it was solely for proclaiming the death of Jesus Christ until he returns. Doesn't that seem simple? What's complicated about that? And yet they have allowed it to be complicated by changing the parameters under which it is held. Let's move on to slide 11 that talks about the verses 24 to 30 or 27 to 34 and explains why is this so important to the members of the church at Corinth and to Paul. First of all, if indeed the church at Corinth knows better than to act as they have, they should want to strive to correct this issue. Their bodies are members of Christ and should reflect the difference that they have to the world. They should not be desecrating the body of Christ, which is the church, through their actions and activities that they have been taking part in. By allowing people to get drunk, by eating in the church, by starting at different times, by turning away those who are hungry, by ignoring those who are in need, They have shown disdain for the church. They are uniquely interwoven with God, the Father, and Jesus Christ. That is clear from the verses that we've talked about so far. They are members of the body of Christ. Therefore, they are present with Christ, with God the Father, and with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within them, we are told. They are uniquely interwoven with God, the Father, and Christ Jesus. When they do not reflect this relationship, they sin against both their brothers and sisters of the church 
That's us, even in this day, as well as Christ. Are they better than their brothers and sisters in Christ? Not at all. We know that. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. It is the exact same reason they came to Christ, to be born again to a new body, to be redeemed in the eyes of God. Otherwise, why did they come to the Lord? In the case of the Lord's Supper, the spiritual significance of the bread and the cup, the condition necessary for partaking of it, and the glorious event to which it points forward, need also be explained again to those people at Corinth. Paul tells them something that should well be established in their minds and hearts, and yet it appears to be forgotten. I want you to take note of the way that Paul corrects them. It's not with a violent tantrum, throwing things and uh, uh, hitting people and doing things like that, but it's in a form that's just very firm, very critical, very direct criticism, but it's something that they can appreciate and examine and should be able to adjust to. It's not easy to take criticism, but let's be honest. When you're wrong, you're wrong. And no amount of talking is going to get you out of that. Paul knows that every believer, every member of the church at Corinth should be prepared to answer any person who asks, what is meant by partaking in this observance in the Lord's Supper? He should be able to turn to various passages which speak of this institution by the Lord Jesus and the purpose for which it was given. However, in fact, they break both commands given to them. They sin against God by not presenting themselves responsibly as members of his body, the church. In a way, they have indeed taken that grace in vain. They also show little respect for their neighbor by allowing them to go hungry or become drunk within the church. Gathering at the church is not for the purpose uh, of unity as it should be, but rather for self-interest for each person present. It is not to eat the Lord's Supper, but rather to satisfy themselves in spite of the needs of others. As I said before, food is brought in from outside and eating happens at will, where they want, when they want. Paul asks them if they should not satisfy themselves by eating at home rather than despising, desecrating God's church with a, with a purpose other than that for which it was established. Why would they shame God's church by establishing different classes of people? setting to the outside those who are poor and in need, those who appear to have been made inferior to others around them. Yet they don't seem to see this as an issue before God. But they will when he comes to judge. So let's go on to slide 12, which asks the question, why is it important to Paul? Once again, it goes back to the basic list that we presented at the beginning. It is Paul's mandate and responsibility to pass this on to others. Okay? This is also shame to Paul. See it from Paul's eyes. He's the one that led them to this church. He's the one that established the precepts and the ordinances for this church. He has taught them to know better, and yet they have failed him. So it is not only for Paul, but the shame is on Paul as well for their actions, because he is responsible for their edification and discernment. In the same way that he is responsible 
to give them constructive criticism as he is doing right now. Verse 23 says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Or as the message says, I received my instructions from the master himself and passed them on to you. He is telling them they have no excuse. They have been told. They have been taught. They have been edified. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1 and 2, he asked them to imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. He calls them traditions. I call them ordinances. They're commanded by Christ to do these things. He says, imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Who are they imitating? Remember the discussion we had a few chapters back in Corinthians where we talked about, are you for Paul? Are you for Apollos? Are you for Jesus? Factions were being created. You can't be for any of those. You can only be for Christ. And Paul has told them that. And Paul emphasizes that again here. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 says, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. First of all, he's establishing the authority with which he gave them this information. And they too would know that Christ died for their sins according to the Scriptures. It is not only Paul, but it is them that should know this as well. But I made known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is imploring them to understand that the words that are coming out of his mouth are the words of Jesus Christ. They are not his words. It is not Paul who is directing traffic here. It is Jesus, the Son of God, who is telling them what to do and how to do it. Paul uses a lot of words here that should ring in their ears and really grab them by the heart. Words like, at the time when he was betrayed, broken for you, a new covenant with you, each time you partake in remembrance of me. These are phrases that they should be hanging their lips and their hearts and their minds and their souls upon but they're not. He pleads with them to be reconciled to Christ once again, to reestablish the ordinance of the celebrating of the Lord's table, the Lord's supper in a manner that is worthy of the sacrifices that Christ has performed for us, for the people at Corinth. They're certainly not doing that. As the passage closes, Paul asks them to reexamine themselves, to be discerning with regards to the Lord's supper. He implores them not to be swayed by the possible judgment of the world, but rather to focus on satisfying the Lord above so that the true judgment will not reflect their current position. They have a way out. They can ask for forgiveness. They have been forgiven already, but they can ask for forgiveness again from the Lord. Keep their accounts short. Straighten themselves out. They are different. 
They are no longer the people that were born into this world. They are a new creation. But they simply aren't getting it. One other point here. In verse 32 it says, But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, and we may not be condemned with the world. And that's that salvation that you received. The last phrase that says, may not be condemned by the world. That is the new covenant that was spoken of. The grace of Jesus Christ that he gives us through the sacrifice of his body and his blood. This is what he gives to the people of Corinth. This is what he gives to Paul. This is what he gives to you and me. But they're not holding on to that. They miss that point. So as we go to slide 13, I'm going to ask you, how does this apply to you? Now, I want to look at this passage one more time quickly, but we're going to read it out of the message, which is more current language, something that maybe you can understand a little bit clearly than the New King James Version that we've been talking about. The words are different, but the concept is the same. Take out of it as much as you can. Try and relate to it as best you can. It's as relatable to us today as it was centuries ago. So reading from the message. Regarding the next item, I'm not at all pleased. I'm getting the picture that when you meet together, it brings out your worst side instead of your best. First, I get this report of your divisiveness, competing with and criticizing each other. I'm reluctant to believe it, but here it is. The best that can be said for it is that the testing process will bring truth into the open and confirm it. And then I find that you bring your divisions to worship. You come together and instead of eating the Lord's Supper, you begin to bring in a lot of food from the outside and make pigs of yourselves. Some are left out and go home hungry. Others have to be carried out. They're too drunk to walk. I can't believe it. Don't you have your own homes to eat and drink in? Why would you stoop to desecrating God's church? Why would you actually shame God's poor? I never would have believed you would stoop to this, and I'm not going to stand by and say nothing. Let me go over with you again exactly what goes on in the Lord's Supper and why it is so centrally important. I received my instructions from the master himself and passed them on to you. The master Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, took bread. Having given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he did the same thing with the cup. This cup is my blood, my new covenant with you. Each time you drink this cup, remember me. What you must solemnly realize is that every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you reenact in your words and actions the death of the master. You will be drawn back to this meal again and again until the master returns. You must never let familiarity breed contempt. Anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the master irreverently is like part of the crowd that jeered and spit on him at his death. Is that the kind of remembrance you want to be part of? Examine your motives. Test your heart. Come to this meal in holy awe. If you give no thought or worse, don't care 
about the broken body of the master when you eat and drink. You're running the risk of serious consequences. That's why so many of you even now are listless and sick and others have gone to an early grave. If we get this straight now, we won't have to be straightened out later. Better to be confronted by the master now than to face a fiery confrontation later. So, my friends, when you come together to the Lord's table, be reverent and courteous with one another. If you're so hungry that you can't wait to be served, go home and get a sandwich. But by no means risk turning this meal into an eating and drinking binge or a family squabble. The other things you asked about, I will respond to you in person when I make my next visit. Powerful words, as I said, different words, but the same message. As we go to slide 17, I ask you again, can you relate to this direction by Paul? Have you left the road for the ditch like the members of the church at Corinth? Do you want to come back to the narrow path that leads to joy and and glorification through the Lord and of the Lord? I want to just close with verse 26 of chapter 11, because I believe it's an excellent summary of the issues that are at hand here and the solution that each of us, including those at Corinth, needed to take and need to take today. It is from the message. It says, What you must solemnly realize is that every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you reenact in your words and actions the death of the master. You will be drawn back to this meal again and again until the master comes. You must never let familiarity breed contempt. What a wonderful passage. It is about man. It is about God. It is about responsibilities. It's about being obedient and faithful to the Lord. It's about keeping short accounts. It's about trusting in God. It's about being different from people in this world. Thank you so much, uh, opening team. And uh, just before I close, I was thinking about this tie that I'm wearing. And uh, it's no wonder that Paul was fit to be tied. Uh, when he went through all the things that he had gone through, but patience, perseverance, and faith in the Lord will always bring you through. Let's just close in a word of prayer. Lord, we just sang that you are so good. Indeed, you are. And Lord, just a simple thing like the Lord's Supper is something that we seem to get wrong. We are stumblers and bumblers, as I said at the first. But Lord, in all that we do, may we reflect upon you. May we turn to you. May we do things for your glory and your glory alone. May we remember that we are no longer of this world. We are only in this world. And that we have very few things that we need to take care of, as the list that we discussed at first shows. There are not a lot of things on that list, Lord, not a lot of things on that item by item basis that we cannot do. It needs to become a daily routine with us, Lord. And so today, as we celebrate Father's Day, which generally is looked upon as a celebration of our biological fathers here on earth, we celebrate you, our Father in heaven. 
the one, the only true living God. And we are thankful, Lord, that you celebrate us, that you loved us so much that you sacrificed your son so that we could come back into the fold, so that we could be redeemed, so that that mansion that is being built and the room that is being prepared for us will not go vacant. Lord, we thank you for all that you do today, tomorrow, and always. We ask your blessing upon us as we depart, and we give you thanks in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, folks. Have a good week. Stay safe and stay in the Lord. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We would love to see you if you are in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at biblefellowshipassembly.ca. Thank you very much. See you next time.